0: What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Alana Bearfield, and you're listening to Hogs Havens Riled Up. And I'm here again with my co-host, Tiffany Hoyt, and we have an amazing show for you all.
1: Yes, Alana, it's good to be here on good soil. We came out of a win. There's some controversy around the win because, of course, Joe Burrow had that crazy injury. I, we wish him the best, but for Washington, Chase Young, the defense showed out. So things, things definitely looked up from our hiatus that we had to take there.
0: It's definitely a bright future for the Washington football team, but I want to cut right to the chase because we have an amazing, actually a phenomenal guest, and that is Jim Trotter, who works for the NFL as a veteran NFL writer. He has reported extensively on player activism and social justice, and he even hosts a podcast with, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are familiar with, it's called Huddle and Flow, where he co-hosted with Steve White. And he discussed the intersection of sports and society. And before going to the NFL, he worked at ESPN, where he covered the NFL nationally since 2014. And let me not forget, Jim is a Howard University graduate. So shout out to all my historically Black colleges and universities. So yeah, just jumping right in, since you are a Howard alumna. You went. You love your school. You have pride for your school. What impact do you think Vice President Elect Harris will have on the Black community?
2: I think it's going to be tremendous. You know, the one thing that I think that that was so important. It's interesting. Um, I'll give you a backstory that will lead me into the answer to you. So we had um, Maya Wiley, who was running for mayor of New York, on our podcast uh, a week ago, I believe, and she was telling us this story that she was on the subway. And this young black woman noticed her and was like, You're, 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 you're her, you're the and she's like, you know, yeah. So anyway, they had a they had a long conversation as as the train was rolling. And then when Maya was getting off, and this woman, this young woman was getting off the same stop, the young woman, and Maya actually shot it and posted it. The young woman sees a little girl, couldn't be more than say four, and says, You need to know her, meaning Maya, you need to recognize her this is going to be the next mayor of new york and what that says is that you can be anything you want to be you know anything is possible and so by kamala being named um vice president-elect i think it's the same message to young black girls out there that anything you want to do you can do and and never take no for an answer and never put up these mental barriers that you can't accomplish um, things at the highest office in this land so I think that was the power of it, you know. Besides being proud as, as a Howard alum, um, and always wanting to represent my school well, uh, I just, I just thought that that was the more powerful moment for little girls of color, who, when they see her, they can say, "Mom, Dad, I can do anything, and I can be anything," and and Kamala Harris shows me that.
1: Wow, you! I got chills in your story, because honestly. Now, I'm 23 years old, but I felt like a little girl watching Kamala Harris um, walk out onto that stage to Mary J. Blige, and you're just like, "What? Like, this is happening!" And it it just you not just like you said, not just as a Howard grad, but just as like a a black person in America, a black woman in America, to go to that level, um, you just felt like you could do that one day. And, Absolutely. You know, and I know we say, oh, we'll be the first, we'll be the first, but no, like we, there's a, there's a plan out now for us. And it just meant so much. And that kind of brings me to my next question for you. Um, we're talking about Kamala Harris, but you in your own right, as a Howard grad and as a, a Black person in the media, you have broken down barriers and you have been like a, a beacon for those coming up. Can you just tell us about like your, your time in the industry and how you've gotten to be who you are right now?
2: sure um you know it's funny somebody asked me because i I graduated from howard in 1986. you guys probably weren't even born so um uh so i'm old that's another way of saying i'm old but
1: Mm -hmm.
2: someone someone asked me recently like um you know they'll they'll ask you things like you know what's your favorite story you've done or what do you want to be remembered by and this and the other and the thing that i say to them and i mean this in all sincerity is that i'm not going to remember a story that I wrote or whatnot. what I will remember is all of those people that I helped along the way and so when I see people such as yourself um, or young blacks in the business who look to me even though I don't consider myself or view myself that way but they look to me as potentially being a mentor and whatnot if I can help them get to where they want to be I get my satisfaction out of that and so you know, my backstory is um, I went to Howard, graduated in 86. I was initially, or I was a broadcast journalism major, but decided my senior year, I did not want to go into broadcast journalism, that I wanted to go into print journalism because I did not want to be judged based on how I looked or how I sounded. I simply wanted to be judged based on the quality of my work, which I felt was easier to do in print. The other thing is, you know, by nature, I'm conservative. so. I like the idea of, of being a salaried employee, as opposed to being on contracts every two or three years, it just didn't sit well with me. And um, so I went the print route and obviously I was behind the eight ball because um, I got into print real late, even though I worked at it my senior year and I had two choices coming out of school. I had one offer to go to the Cleveland plane dealer on a six month internship, which they were telling me could become a permanent position or i had an opportunity to go to muskegon michigan to a 50,000 circulation paper and a town that i had never heard of in my life and i chose muskegon because being all i always want to be real with myself and i said i still have a lot to learn being behind in the print game and it was the best choice for me so i think for young folk out there who think right away i want to go to the washington post or new york times if you can do it and if it's right for you more power to you. But for me, I knew it was not the right thing because the one thing I don't want to do is fail and have nowhere to go but down. Um, so I went to Muskegon, Michigan for 10 months, ended up getting an offer to go to Tacoma, Washington to cover high schools. I went and did that. Um, I stayed there for a little under two years and then I moved to San Diego where I'm at now. And I, and I was at the newspaper in San Diego for 18 years where I started out covering high schools then I did some minor league hockey, some NBA. Um, we would go up to L.A. and cover the Lakers and Clippers. And then I got moved to the NFL beat where I was covering the Chargers. And that kind of got me on my roll to where I'm at now in terms of being an NFL writer. So I spent, I don't know, about a decade doing that at the newspaper. The next thing I know, I wound up at Sports Illustrated, um, was there six and a half years, then went on to ESPN for uh, three or four years. And then now to the NFL network. So my journey has been, um, everybody has their own path and some people like to plan things out in like five year intervals and say, this is where I want to be on this day, this year, etc." I'm not one of those people. I'm one of those people. If I'm happy and satisfied with where I'm at, then I'm good with it. I'm, I'm not saying I have to be, um, at a more prestigious isn't the right thing, but I have to climb that ladder because um, at the end of the day, um, the reality is regardless of what name is on that check, as long as the check clears, you you, you feel good. So, um, so that's kind of my my background in journalism. So I've been doing the NFL since I believe nineteen ninety six, and um, and the the interesting thing is how things come full circle because as the journalism industry has changed, you're no longer just a print reporter or a TV reporter. You now have to be skilled in all of those areas if you really want to make it. And there are exceptions to everything, but you've got to be versatile to make it today, I believe. And so I'm now doing a lot of TV again, which I don't like. Um, I'm not real comfortable with, but it's just part of the journey Um, Want to stay relevant and employed so um, so that's kind of what I'm doing now is, is, is I'm still trying to write more than I do TV, but um, what I have learned and what I continue to learn is the industry is changing so fast, just as technology and society is changing so fast that you better be open to everything that comes down the pike or you're gonna get left behind. And um, anyone who is too rigid, they won't be around for long. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you definitely seem like a natural on TV.
2: Uh, <laughs> you like you were born I'm not. i no. tell yeah. you what. No, here's the truth. But here's the truth about TV. Okay. If you sit me at a table and we have a discussion like you and I are having right now, I'm good. I got no problems with that. Where I struggle is that when they take you and they put a microphone in your hand and they put you on a sideline and they say, do a report before the game or after the game. And this is, I'm gonna tell you a true story here. So when I I had never done it before when I got to ESPN, and so it was the preseason. And I said to my boss, I said, Hey, I've never done this before. I said, Can I get some training, you know, something to work on this before the regular season starts? And he goes, No, you'll be fine. You you got this. So I'm like, all right. So the last week of the preseason, they send me up to Seattle to cover the game. And after the game, we have to do a stand up. So I wrote out this script, the producer approved it, she sent it in. And when we did it the first time, I guess I was off by one word somewhere. So she goes, let's do it again. And now it's in my head where I'm trying to hit every word that I wrote and be perfect. And it was so bad. I'm not, and I'm not just saying that it was bad. So some, some dude hit me up on Twitter and he said, man, I just saw your report. And he said, that was awful. And he said, our high school reporter, to do better than that and I said to him you know what you're probably right and I said hopefully one day we'll hire and and I was sincere about it because it's just it was foreign to me I'd never done it and now you get thrown out um on the biggest stage in sports to do that you know at least by the biggest platform to do it and um and I'm still not comfortable with it but what I've tried to do and what I've tried to learn is you know what you don't have to be perfect and hit every word just try as best you can to have a conversation with that camera. And I'm gonna give you one other story here, and, and it's true, and I probably shouldn't, but I'm, I'm gonna give it to you anyway. So another time, not long after that, I'm back in Seattle, and it's late in the season, and Colin Kaepernick and the 49ers are about to play the Seahawks. And so I have to do a stand-up in the morning. So I do I do the first hit, which is what the stand the first one's called, it's a hit. So my phone rings. Um, and I answered and it's one of my colleagues and I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. And he says to me, he goes, Trot, He goes, are you married? And I said, yeah. And he said, you got a girlfriend? I said, don't have a girlfriend. And he's like, yeah, you got a girlfriend? And I said, no, I don't have a girlfriend. And he said, that camera is your girlfriend. And he said, when you talk to that camera, you want to make that camera feel like there's no one else in the world and he's like you want to make love to that camera and i start laughing as he's telling me this but i knew what he was saying and so the next hit i did that morning i tried to loosen up a little bit i don't know if i made love to the camera but i think it was a little bit better than it was the time before
0: so for everyone listening make yeah. love to that camera
2: that's the that was the message you Nope. Know? <laughs> You know, you just, you got, you got, in other words, you got to connect with it one way or another. And, and it, it, it illuminates and exponentially shows, catches your facial expression. Cause I'm the kind, I can't hide I'm thinking. So if like, I know I messed up, it's going to show on my face. And the problem is when it shows in my face, it really shows on camera. So you have to find, a that's why I would almost recommend being a hundred percent truthful with you for anyone who wants to go into this business and be on camera to take like a theater class or something, just an acting class, to, to, to be better prepared for those moments where, because it is, it in some ways, it is an act to look comfortable when you're not comfortable, you know, and to be able to converse um, at a time where maybe you're not fully comfortable on what you're reporting on, but you got to make that audience believe that you are the authority on what you're talking about. So if I were to do it all over again, knowing that I was going to be on camera, if that was the way it was going to go, I definitely as a young person would take an acting class to help me.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, these are tools my dad always says it's tools in your toolbox. So whatever tools you can put in your toolbox to make you better, make you grow, then those are always necessary. And especially um, I think for, People who are like you, who are not sure whether they want to do print or do broadcast, that it is good to just have something in your trick bag that you can pull out. So if you can head on over to Fine Arts at Howard University. My Howard friends, they they always watch. So head on over there and take a Debbie Island class or something. Washington football, right? I, I want to kind of get into that because it's so much. For years, this team has been... Down and out. Um, we thought things were looking up when the name changed. Um, we thought things were looking up when we got Dwayne Haskins. Um, Terry McLaurin had a great rookie season, and he's gone into a a, a good, a great sophomore season. Um, what does Washington football need to do to be better?
2: Well, I'm a firm believer that everything starts at the top, and that means ownership on down. I think ownership sets the culture for what the expectations are and not only what the expectations are, but how things are going to be done. Um, the one thing with Dan Snyder, his history has been in the past, and I'm not saying at this moment, but in the past, especially when he first took over the team and whatnot, he was a meddlesome owner and winning wasn't enough. He wanted to win a certain way, which is one reason back in the day, he fired Marty Schottenheimer, um, which I believe was one of the biggest mistakes that, that he made. So, the thing I've been told now by Ron Rivera, their current coach, we had Ron on the uh, week one of our podcast um, and talked about that um, Snyder was not getting in the way. And that basically anything Ron wanted to do from a football operation standpoint, Snyder has co-signed on. So that's a positive. The problem now is, I believe, number one, it's a quarterback driven league. So if you're going to be successful, you've got to have a quarterback. That's number one. Alex Smith's story is... is it defies description, in, in my opinion. And um, I've known of Alex since he was in high school. He, he went to high school out here in the suburbs of San Diego. I've known his parents since he was in high school, and he's just one of the finest people you'll ever meet. Having said that, um, I'd be lying if I didn't say that after watching that ESPN documentary on his recovery, me personally, I never wanted him to play again. I just wanted him to enjoy his family, um and have a great quality of life but what i had to remind myself was that his journey is not my journey and so if this is something that he feels he needs for whatever the reason may be then more power to him and you pray for him and you support him and and you let him go forward and what he has done has been remarkable um so number one if you're washington you've got to find a long-term answer at quarterback in my opinion now then it becomes what is your philosophy on building a football team? My philosophy has always been you build inside out. And by that, I mean if you're strong up front on both lines, you have a better chance of succeeding as opposed to if you're allocating all of your resources to all of the the, the fancy pieces, the skill position players and whatnot. And you can't protect up front or you can't get to the opposing quarterback. Your chances of being successful are not very good. Um, and I have to look no further than just up in LA when I look at the chargers, who have skill position players coming out of their pores and yet they can't protect very well and therefore not much is happening. So this is a long winded way of saying to you, I think number one, Dan Snyder has to be patient with Ron. If you believe Ron is the right guy, then you've got to give him time to um, handle his business. I don't like how they handle the Dwayne Haskins situation. Um, Look, even if you don't believe he's the guy, the minute you turn it over to him, you've got to support him for more than just a handful of games. And if you don't, um, then how can you be trusted when you say, as Ron said to us week one on the podcast, that I do support him, I stand behind him, he has shown me that he's willing to do the work that I've asked him to do, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, you leak it, I'm not saying Ron did it, but someone in the organization leaked it to the media that he has to have a great game to keep his job. He goes out and has his best game as a pro and you still bench him. So from my standpoint, what it says to me, and again, this is an outsider, is that the offensive coordinator, Scott Turner had a relationship with Kyle Allen down in Carolina and that Scott Turner wanted Kyle Allen to be the quarterback all along and ultimately got what he wanted after the team struggled early. And now you have what you have.
0: Well, now we get into the free agents and that's going to be interesting conversation. When we look at Phillip rivers, who is someone that ongoing conversation, do you think rivers could be a possible good fit for Washington football team?
2: No, I think Phillip's going to finish up in Indy and then he's retiring. So, you know, I think he plays depend. We'll see how this year goes for him. And then um, if he still chooses to play one more year, it'll be in Indianapolis and then he's out. He's not the kind of guy that's just going to be moving his family all around the country. Remember, he's got, I believe they're up to now nine kids. So he is not he he's not about them, you know, um, pick up and move around life. So. Um, so, no, he'll finish. He'll fin- I believe he'll finish up in Indianapolis.
1: Yeah. Philip was a guy who they talked about him in free agency. And like you said, this is a quarterback driven league everyone's trying to figure out what can be the difference here in Washington. Um, We were just previously talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of teams in this league, they're one draft pick away from success. And that's really just comes down to a quarterback. Um, A lot of people. If you,
2: if you have, if you have the right components around him. And the reason I say that is look at Ryan Tannehill. He is drafted in the first round by the Miami dolphins. And yet he struggles every year down there and now he goes off to tennessee and he gets a big contract because he plays so well the problem the the issue is too often we in the media are quick to label a player a bust if he doesn't succeed right away and what we fail to do is to, to look at the context or the circumstances of the situation that that player is put into for instance alex smith i think his first I'm just going to pick a number and say it's at least his first five years in the league. He had a different offensive coordinator every year in San Francisco. So it's hard for any young quarterback to succeed under those conditions. And then if you have a team that is consistently missing on draft picks that are supposed to benefit you, whether it is an offensive lineman or whether it's a wide receiver, whatever it may be, it becomes more difficult for you to succeed. So I always say that, that the caveat is. We always have to look at the circumstances that a player is placed into how many times have we seen players struggle in one place where they're drafted, leave that city, and then become truly um, um, productive players elsewhere. And I can go back to when I was a little kid, for instance, with um, Jim Plunkett, you know, who was drafted number one overall by the New England Patriots did nothing was considered a bust up there. Ends up going to the to the then Oakland Raiders and wins two Super Bowls, a Super Bowl MVP in one of them. You know, so it's to me, it's not just about a player's ability; it's about his circumstances, and I think that too often we overlook that.
1: So does Dwayne Haskins? Does he have a different outcome somewhere else? I I, I honestly don't see him recovering here in Washington. Uh, even from his standpoint, I don't know why I would trust the regime that
2: he won't be back. He won't be back. He won't be back in Washington. No, he won't. And um, so now the question is, where does he go and who believes in him? And I don't know who that is. And I don't know him well enough or have studied him long enough to say if I believe that he can be an effective quarterback in the NFL. I know he had tremendous success in college that one year at Ohio State. So I wish nothing but the best for him but I think he's going to have to be very smart the next time around in terms of where he goes and not look for that short term gain, but look for, you know, um, some sort of long-term development and get with an offensive staff that has a reputation for developing quarterbacks. Um, and, and I think if he does that, he has a better chance as opposed to just signing someplace that maybe offers him the most money. So he's, he's got a long road in front of him. I'm not here to say he can't do it, but um, you have to humble, you know, and I hate to say this, but it's true. You have to humble yourself and say, just like Jameis Winston had to do this year mm-hmm. and say, okay, the market isn't there for me the way that I would want it to be. So what can I do that's going to best help me become the player that I want to be?
0: Definitely the dynamics change, especially when Alex Smith came back. Uh, Everyone thought Hastings was going to be that go-to person, but it's not, but we see Alex Smith. We see Antonio Gibson there. They are literally getting it done on the field. But is that enough to win the NFC East?
2: (laughs) Yes, Um, that's how bad the division is. I mean, we were joking about it, but we're not really joking that, you know, you could possibly win that division with six wins. That's crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. I know, that's what we said. I said six and then someone else said five and then someone else said four. And I'm like, dang, man, we're really getting to the bottom of the barrel here. But um, but yeah, so yes, you you can you can potentially win it because no one is running away with that division. And as a matter of fact, the team that wins on Thanksgiving Day will be in first place in the division. Now, who'd have thought that? You know, when we're talking about the Cowboys and, and Washington football team, I I wouldn't. But this is life in the NFL. And here's the other thing I will say to you, even if the division champion in the NFC East has a losing record, do you know that the last, I'm gonna say two minimum and possibly three times that a division champion had a 500 or lower record, they won their first playoff game. Mm -hmm. When everybody was talking about they shouldn't be allowed in the playoffs, they're terrible, they're this, Those clubs won their playoff game, including one time Seattle beating the defending Super Bowl champion, New Orleans Saints. So all I'm going to say to you is anything's possible.
1: Well, we're going to need anything's possible. Um, We're running on 10 years of lackluster performance, but uh, there might be um, something happening for us where we can win four games and make it to the playoffs. And that'll be wait. Are you are
2: you both natives? Washington natives.
1: I'm from, I was actually born in San Diego. I grew up in. Really? Yeah. So when I saw 619, I'm like, oh, I didn't know he was in San Diego.
2: Yeah. Oh, how long did you live out here?
1: That's where I grew up. I grew up in California. I'm a Cali girl.
2: Oh, okay. What about you,
1: Alana?
0: Yeah, Boston. And then my dad grew up in New Orleans. So that's how I went to Xavier, that whole connection. So So I'm a, yeah.
2: So how are you two so, so um, interested in Washington and the football team?
1: i going to Howard. My first like NFL um, internship was with Tony Wiley and Washington. Uh, so that's okay. i I'm immersed in it. And I was like, this became my team now. This is my first gig. And okay. Ended up meeting some SB Nation people. And they were like, you want to do a podcast?
2: Nice, nice. I talk to Tony every now and then. So he's doing well with his new gig. Um okay, but now I understand. All right. I I got and and Alana, you how did you become
0: Yeah? Well, no, we did a fellowship together uh through ESPN The Undefeated. And that's how oh, okay. we,
2: since
0: then we best of friends.
2: Okay, I got it. I got it. All right. You know, cause they Washington fans are they are um they're interesting. I put it yeah. that way. Well, I was at Howard the year that um, it was a year after they won the Super Bowl in the strike shortened season. So the next year obviously, they rolled through the league. I think they were like 14 and two, I can't remember. But anyway, they just steamrolled people even in the playoffs and then they get to the Super Bowl. And I remember at that time I was I was living in the dorm Meridian Hall. And um, a friend of mine lived across the street in some apartments. So a bunch of us went over there to watch the Super Bowl and the Raiders just smacked down Washington. I mean, just, it was embarrassing. I was the, Marshall, um, the Marcus Allen long run and this and the other. And I'll never forget. I remember opening the window and just listening and it was the quietest I had ever heard that city. The quietest. So. Um, they they truly live and die with that football team.
1: They ride or die, and you kind mm-hmm. of you kind of get immersed in it when you're around it. So I'm like, okay, but it's been a tough road. It's been a it's been a tough run of things. Um, I was a, watching a little bit. I think I was in middle school when RG three and um, Shanahan were there, and I knew how that went, and I knew that. They rushed them back. So I do want to ask a question on the injuries that have riddled really the NFC East and Washington in particular. Um, that has been a big thing. Are they bringing players back too early? Are they taking proper care of players? I know that Ron Rivera brought in a whole new regime of athletic trainers and doctors because of the um, the Trent Williams situation. What are your thoughts on all that?
2: Yeah, truthfully, it's not limited to Washington. I mean, you can go across the NFL. Um, and you will find in most cities they will tell you um, no one's feeling sorry for them because their situations are as you know as bad as anyone else. San Francisco has been decimated by injuries. I mean, when you talk about your quarterback, your running backs, your wide receivers, your best pass rusher, um, your best cornerback, you know, um, and they're they're just trying to make it work. And I can, I can go through other teams that are dealing with the same thing. So I don't have an answer for you as to why it's happening. You know, people are going to try and connect dots with, you know, there being no off season, no training, um, those sorts of things. But when you look at the actual numbers, at least the injury data that I that I've seen, it it's not really that much different than in any other year. Uh, it's just that some of the names are so big that we're hearing about that um, folks talk as if it, it's it's like there's a um, the numbers have just skyrocketed this year. But I don't know. I mean, other teams have done the same thing Washington did in terms of changing, changing their entire training staff to try and um, find another way to deal with this. Look, the reality is football is an inherently violent sport. And some people want to call it a contact sport. It's not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. It is a violent sport. And just by its very nature, people are going to get hurt. And there's just no getting around that. The teams that can best manage that and that's why they always talk about in the playoffs, you know, when people say to me who's going to win in the playoffs and I always say okay tell me who's healthy. Tell me who's the healthiest because that's going to impact who does what and it's just a fact of life in the NFL and that's why you always hear teams talk about they just want to get healthy at the right time.
0: Really interesting. Uh, And see if there's any injuries that's going to happen on Thursday. We see Thursday, the big game, Dallas Cowboys going up against the Washington football team. As we know, they became fierce rivals in the 1960s and 1970s. But who do you think will take home the W on Thursday? Does the Washington football team have an actual shot this time?
2: Oh, it has a shot. Um, Will it win? (laughs) It could. Yeah. You know, the better question is, will I be watching? Um, I don't know. (laughs) I'm just being honest here. I may not be watching it. I mean, two sub 500 teams at this point of the year, I can't say I'm overly excited about watching it, especially when we're talking about, you know, um, a backup quarterback in in Dallas and in all likelihood I'll watch because just because of Alex Smith. Uh, but if I had to pick one or the other right now, yeah, I can see Washington winning that game. Absolutely.
1: I think Washington needs that win. Um, but the, uh, the bigger story for me in this game will definitely be if Washington does pull it out, how much further does Dak Prescott's stock rise? In the NFL, I think that's a big topic for me. I'm like Dallas. They should have paid the man. I know people want to talk business and it's just good business. But at, at the end of the day, as a fan, I'm like, pay Dak Prescott. So uh, what are your thoughts on him being a free agent?
2: Well, here's my thing. And I, I look at it from a little different angle than that. I'm a big believer that if you believe in who you are, what you're about and that sort of thing, bet on yourself. And so I was one of those people who was saying, I'm happy Dak didn't sign a deal just to sign a deal because look at the reality of it. Let's say he wanted he wanted a four year deal, let's say $120 million, I don't know. I'm just put, picking out round numbers, that's 30 million a year. So, wait, is that right? Four four years, 30 million, 120, yeah. So you can tell I didn't major in math. Um, so, so, he plays this year under franchise tag for $31 million. Let's say you go out and you ball out like you expect to. Well, the next year, if they don't give you what you want, they got to franchise you again to keep you. You get a 120% increase over the previous year. So that's adding another six million onto that. So now you've made 66 million over two years. Okay. Remember, initially you wanted 120 over four. You've now made 66 million over two years. Well, the third year, you go out and you ball out again in year two. The third year. not going to franchise you because the cost is so exorbitant that they just couldn't so now you've got all the leverage you're either going to be a free agent or they're going to have to give you what you want and if they don't give you what you want you're on the open market in your prime not even 30 yet and there will be a team out there that will give you uh, the way the market is going now at least let's say 200 million guaranteed so now you've turned by betting on yourself, instead of having a four-year $120 million deal, you basically have gotten a three-year deal for almost 300 million, let's say. So I'm all right I'm all right with Dak um, not signing a long-term deal. Now, the risk is always that you could suffer a career-ending injury, but that's what you have insurance for. You take out a policy before the season. If you suffer that injury that prevents you from playing again, you collect on it. But for me, I'm comfortable with where Dak is and, and his value is only going to continue to escalate. And isn't that amazing or isn't it ironic that your value increases by not playing as opposed to actually being on the field?
0: Ironic, very interesting. So if De- if Dak does leave, goes to another team, what does that mean for the Cowboys? Who are they then when he's not the face anymore?
2: It depends on who they bring in. And that's why I say I don't think Dak is going anywhere. Um, but if they were to let him go, you would have to say, okay, who are you bringing in now? I think they thought they were being cute and thought that Andy Dalton could be that guy who could step in, and you know, if something happened to Dak, and he's a he's a proven starter, all those years in Cincinnati and whatnot. But we've seen just how different, excuse me, the level of performance is between those two so we now know he's not the long-term answer so they have to answer the question you always you know one of the things i've been taught in this business is um particularly the nfl covering the nfl is that you never make a decision until you have to make a decision and so if you're the cowboys what you do is you wait to see what what's out there on the market you know and if there is someone there or if there's an opportunity to bring in someone that you think could be a better fit than Dak both financially if not necessarily the football fit then maybe you go down that road but then if that's not there you're gonna to have to pony up and pay the man
1: right um, pony up and pay him that's what i want to see i, I want to see him get paid um just he will. jack prescott i feel like he's you, you want to see i don't know quote unquote america's team's quarterback kind of get his just due because he did kind of carry that torch for a while when behind tony romo the cowboys were very lackluster. like they would get there I, finish
2: i want to see a young brother get paid who earned it that's what i want to see
1: uh, thank you for saying he earned
2: it like they treated that man some kind of way you know by waiting all these years and not paying him and acting like You know, trying to say publicly that they believed in him, but then their actions not reflecting their words. So I want to see that young brother get paid and get paid handsomely. And ultimately, I think he will.
1: So around the league, we talk about all the black quarterbacks starting and doing great things. You've seen it unfold to where times there weren't there was only one backup quarterback that was black or maybe you would see Mike Vick when he was at Philly. You watched all that. But what's the importance of there being so many black quarterbacks in the league getting it done?
2: Yeah, I think it's funny. I'm actually working on a story about that, that um, that'll run around the Super Bowl, I think. But look, the reality is the game is changing and not just at the NFL level, but at the levels below it. And so, when you have so many college programs running RPOs, you know, run pass options and whatnot, the quarterback position has become much more athletic than it had back in my day, let's say, where traditionally NFL clubs were looking primarily just for a pocket passer. And the reality is now, because at the youth level and at the college level, so many clubs are teaching RPO concepts that that's where much of the talent is going. And so if the NFL is smart and what these coaches are showing is that they are smart and they're going to have to adapt, that's what they're doing. And it's it's funny, it was um, week, I don't know if it was three or four, but I remember I was on the phone with Doug Williams and, um, and Doug said to me, um, he goes, hey man, he goes, can you believe we got, um, I think it was like four or five games where it was black quarterbacks starting against each other. And I said, Doug, you know what? I hadn't even thought about it. And then I asked him, I said, is that a good thing? That now it's like, you almost don't even think about it anymore, you know? And when we talk about the best quarterbacks in the league now, we talk Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, you know, among others, the Aaron Rodgers and whatnot. And it's it's the last, what? the last two MVPs have been black quarterbacks, uh, Lamar Jackson and um, Patrick Mahomes. So I I don't think Russell's going to get it this year. I think Patrick's going to get it again, Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. So we don't, you know, it's almost like we've reached that point where it's not the story anymore, which is a great thing. but you still have some guys who hold to those old concepts and beliefs. When Bill Polian said that Lamar Jackson should move to wide receiver, uh, I mean, it was like, really, Bill? Come on, you know, we're past those days. And Lamar has gone out and proved him right. So um, so no, I think it's a great thing. I think it's only going to continue uh, because in today's NFL game, for the most part, what you're seeing are young, mobile quarterbacks black or white. I mean, look at the Chargers. Justin Herbert at 6 foot 6 can run his ass off, you know? So, um, we're going to see a lot more of that regardless of race, and I just don't think race is going to be an impediment at that position.
0: You a
1: great day. Like
0: you said, we and- definitely see about black quarterbacks coming up in the league, but what about the crew? I mean, we just made history for Monday 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 uh, night football. Or the officiating crew of being all Black, it, it's translating over that we're seeing more representation and diversity.
2: See, I- I'm gonna give you an answer that you might not have expected. I look at it suspiciously. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to me that in this year of enlightenment in the NFL, where all of a sudden, after four years of trying to get players not to demonstrate, of not wanting to talk about social issues, all of a sudden, we're seeing the Black national anthem before the game. We're seeing hashtags about end racism. We're seeing messaging that it takes all of us, you know, and all of a sudden now it's being promoted that, hey, we got the first all Black officiating crew. And that's not in any way to demean or diminish what these men, and hopefully one day there will be a Black woman to have accomplished. But it is to say that it took you this long. And Jerome Boger's crew, if memory serves me right, five on that crew are Black, so you only had to add two others to make it an all-Black crew. So I'm I'm just saying, okay, great. But I'm still a little suspicious about the boom.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say that it's good to see some progress, but you're absolutely right. You, you are right to be suspicious because um, history has shown us that sometimes it, it's better to be suspicious than to wait till it happens. Um, and and that's, just, that's just the honest truth. Uh, when it comes to Washington, uh, this team, I, a lot of fans have the right to be suspicious of the future um, because uh, you just never know. You never know how this is going to go. You don't know if um, Dan Snyder and Ron Rivera I, – I listened to the episode of Huddle and Flow – where um, Ron Rivera was talking about the trust that Dan Snyder has in him and and their rapport and the relationship. But um, history has told us some other things about Dan Snyder. Um,
2: Look, here's the reality, too. Dan Snyder may not own that team much longer. If all of the allegations that have been discussed turn out to be true, the league has the ability to make it – The league has the ability to force a change so if i'm dan snyder i'm 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 a little worried i'm a little concerned now i don't know what's true and what isn't i just know an awful lot of people have come forward making allegations and we've all been taught where there's smoke there's fire how high that fire goes i don't know but i do know that if these claims are proven to be true, it would not shock me if we saw a change in ownership in Washington.
1: So I do want to, before we close out, because I think um, we're going to give you your evening. But um, all good. We have not been talking about the sexual harassment claims. We talked about it in our first episode for this season, but that that's still buzzing. I, I want to know that, like, that's still buzzing on on your end. You're hearing that
2: no um, no I'm not just like like you're not um, what we've been told is that an investigation is taking place exactly. but this is where the NFL is very good at this whenever there is something negative that comes up the NFL will always say we understand we are aware and we are investigating and these investigations can take forever look we had Robert Kraft who was arrested on suspicion of soliciting prostitution we have not, Gotten any word yet from the league? And what that was almost a year ago,
1: yeah.
2: That we've not gotten any resolution to that in terms of discipline. Had that been a player, would the discipline have taken this long? No. I don't know. So, so for me, um, they are telling us that these investigations are going on, and at some point, they're going to have to speak to it. I don't know when but they will at some point.
0: I hope so. In due time. Mm -hmm. Well, where can people find you on social media? Where can they find your podcast, especially for Jamel Hill and Kara Champion that's dropping tomorrow? Where can they stay updated with all your great content?
2: Oh, Steve Washington and I, our podcast drops on um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts every Tuesday morning. I think on the East Coast at 6 a.m., if I'm not mistaken. and then, you know, depending on what we have going on and whatnot, we'll also drop one on Thursdays. A lot of times, this one we've turned into a two-parter. For one, because it's the holiday on on Thursday, so, you know, we didn't want to have to to try and make people work um, when they're trying to enjoy their holidays. So, uh, but yes, you can find it on Apple Podcast, Spotify Podcast, social media, Jim Trotter underscore NFL on Twitter, and um, that's really it. I'm not I'm not a big social media guy. I just I there's just for me personally, it's like I don't necessarily enjoy the attention and I definitely don't enjoy trolls. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of kind of keep to myself with with um as it relates to social media.
1: All right. Well, I want to commend you on everything you're doing. You have like paved the way a howard grad I keep going back to that cause you know, I went to the illustrious Howard university and so did you. Um,
2: we got, do you know, do you know how many of us are out in this business, in this industry? I mean, easy. we, we, we all, like I know Syracuse likes to talk about all its people mm-hmm. and Missouri likes to talk about his people, but I will match our people up against any of them, you know, and that's from Gus Johnson on down, you know, um, Steve Washington, myself, Daryl Ledbetter in Atlanta, um, Mm -hmm. our producer on our our podcast. The three people associated with our podcast are all Howard grads. Yeah. Steve and I and our producer. um, I mean, we we are. And then behind the scenes, like we have a female producer um, at the NFL Network who's also a Howard grad. We are everywhere, you know, so I love it. Um, And I'm proud of all of them uh you know stan barrett at espn mm-hmm. who's a new orleans guy yes so you know i'm sure that that that, that the folks down there love him because that's the one oh, thing about yeah. One thing I, yeah i love about new orleans it's like it's all family you know it's all good so literally um, yeah oh wait i got a question for you then so when i go to new orleans where am i going for gumbo oh because you have you have to ask the locals you can't you can't do read in the magazine and all that so, where, where do I go He's for Gumbo? so
0: upset. Uh, gumbo. Hmm. Okay, so have you heard of Neo's? Neo's is
2: a good place. Uh, I'm going to write this down Neo's.
1: Give me on the tour.
2: Dunbar's.
0: Dunbar's. Uh, heard that kitchen.
2: Heard that kitchen, okay.
0: Yeah, it's like a hole in the wall, but I, trust me, that's a really good place. They don't have gumbo, but you get good seafood there. um All right. What? Oh, you're making me. What else could I? Okay, those will be it? the top three. Oh. Okay. If you want good breakfast food, yeah. Surrey's S-U-R-R-E-Y-S. There's two of them on Magazine Street.
2: S-U-R-R.
0: S U R R E Y S, Surries on Magazine. Okay. It's a breakfast joint. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. Next time i well, I don't know when I'm going to travel again. I haven't traveled mm-hmm. since March, which is crazy. But okay. next time I do, I get back down there, I'll be hitting one of them. Okay. All right.
0: Thank, Thank you.
1: you. Oh, so much. I, I, I say I want to have every. You know how they said you said there's a million people in the industry that are higher grads. I've yeah. had on the show. I've had you How only, many? Um I've had so many. I I don't even know the number count, but I've had Daryl Ledbetter, Steve, um I'm working on Gus right now, but howard grad I just want to um commend our alumni network. You guys are really just um great and always willing to reach back. But it's really in general the HBCU network is really to reach back. So I always tell Oh, them, it's huge. I want to ask you this because I love to tell young kids to go to HBCUs. Why did you choose at HBCU? And that's
2: where we'll leave it. Oh, true story. Like neither of my parents graduated high school. So college was never talked about a lot in my house, which is not to say that it um, it wasn't something that was wanted. It just wasn't talked about a lot. So fortunately I had a high school counselor who was like, no, you know, a black woman was like, no, you're going to college and she helped me out. Well, long story short, our black student union in high school, there was a state convention here in California, and because I grew up in Northern California, and it was held on the UCLA campus. And one of the forums that was being conducted was historically by colleges and university. Well, I didn't know anything about them, obviously. And so I go in, I sit in on this forum, and one of the schools represented was Howard. And when I listened to this person talk, it was like, that's where I want to go. And so I didn't have the money initially to go. I, I applied. This is in the spring now. I'm applying in the, you know, to go um that and I get accepted, but I didn't have the money. So I said, I'm gonna stay in some general ed work done for two years in California and then I'll try in, which is what I did. And the one thing I can say to you is funny because I had this conversation today with um with Michael Smith and Michael Holly um, on their podcast, Brother from Another. And, they said, and I think that was so important is I went to predominantly white high schools, or I uh, went to a predominantly white high school growing up. And the minute I landed on Howard's campus, I just felt at home. And I felt like I wasn't a number. I felt like people had a vested interest in me. And I felt that whether I succeeded or failed mattered. To people there, and held accountable. You know, it wasn't you weren't given anything. You had to earn it, and there was a there there was sort of this unwritten competition among even students. You know, where you didn't want to be bringing up the rear. So um, I just found it to be a nurturing place. I found it to be everything I needed to succeed in my profession and in life was there, and that if I didn't, it was on me and not the university. And so for me to be able to sit here now, let me see, let me do the math, 86, so that's what, 14 years, that's, and now 20, what's that, 34 years since I graduated, am I doing it right? 34 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, For me to sit here 34 years later and say, if I could go to any university in the country right now, bar none, which one would it be? I would go back to Howard and do it all over again.
1: Well, that's it. I want to leave it there. I love that. I love those stories. HBCUs are so important to um, our community. And
2: I but can't Tiffany, you know this. I, I'm guessing you know this. I don't know how often you had gotten out of the state as a as, you know growing up in San Diego and say getting back east. Like when <laughs> I got to Howard, I had never heard of go-go music.
1: Nothing. You know,
2: no. You know, all these different things that life on it because I had never been out of state. Yeah. So all, all these different things when I get back there, they're new to me, you know, or even New Yorkers and, mm-hmm. and how brass they can be, and you know, yeah. kind of in your face, and you gotta you gotta adjust and say, Oh, it's not personal, it's just that's kind of who they are. Yeah. yeah, so <laughs> all of that. But I remember I'll never forget I landed in DC and I got in a cab and and dude was playing Go-Go and I was like, What is this? He's like, You never heard of go-go? I'm like, nah. And, Next thing I know, I'm bumping Chuck Brown, you know, and whatnot, so. I love it. Um, yeah, so.
1: Awesome, you swearing by it. I I had a similar experience. I went to all-white high school, and Howard just, like, embraced me. And what you give your HBCU is what they will give back to you, plus way beyond what you could ever desire and imagine. Um, so if you just put in a little effort and go to nation.
2: Let, let's be real here now we don't want to fool anybody <laughs> okay. okay all right you get you you got to have a little bit of patience too because
1: character to builders like if you can make it through your freshman year in the quad or in and drew or in cook if you could make it through that i don't know what your dorm was alana but you know that dorm that the water wasn't running right or yeah. crazy happening I have emails I wrote to President Frederick, and I pray he never reads them (laughs) in the future. But my first semester at Howard, oh, but I made it through and I was character because of it.
2: Life skills. It prepares you. It it will test you in ways that you didn't know.
1: How to, you Um, know, like the people to test, like, you know, what you can say to the person, what not to say. Best history lesson, life lesson you'll ever learn is at HBCU. I'm telling you,
2: I'm telling you. So, but ladies, it's been a blast. So I'm, i I thank you for having me on. Thank you,
1: My pleasure. Um, thank you for tuning in to Riled Up, ladies and gentlemen. We are again riled up to bring you the hottest Washington football team topics with a twist. You have a good evening, and remember to stay riled up.